We're, of course, in a series on the church. And uh, thus far, each of our pastors have been able to speak to you regarding aspects related to the church. And we come this morning to a very, very important section in our series, and that is the ordinances of the church. The ordinances of the church. Now, I'm not going to be able, of course, to speak about all of the controversies that are surrounding the ordinances of the church. Had we time and opportunity, we would, of course, speak about the mode of baptism. We'll speak just a little bit about that. Had we time and opportunity, we would talk about all of the issues, debates, and controversies surrounding what the Lord's Supper might mean when Jesus says, this is my body, which is given for you, and we'll talk a little bit about that. But we really don't have time nor inclination to talk about all of the debates and the controversies surrounding the ordinances of the church, which we believe as Bible-believing evangelicals here at the Bible Church of Little Rock are baptism and the Lord's Supper. And I want to talk very, very briefly, really only about 20 minutes or so on these two ordinances, so that we might set in our minds when we talk about the church, what the church is to believe and to practice with regard to these ordinances. And so, for our time together this morning, I really want to talk from the Bible, very briefly, and really in a cursory fashion, about baptism and the Lord's Supper as those two marks of obedience as we talk about the ordinances of the church. For we do believe that the experience of every professing believer is to be baptized and to celebrate the Lord's Supper. We do believe that's an issue of obedience. And we don't apologize for that. We don't shy away from that. We believe that baptism and the Lord's Supper are marks of obedience to Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord. And we want to talk about that. We want to do so in a fashion that simply lays out in a few verses by way of some key passages what we believe regarding baptism and the Lord's Supper. And of course, last Lord's Day, we saw the wonderful ordinance of baptism, where we saw five people being baptized based upon their profession of faith in Christ, their public acknowledgement of their relationship to Jesus, and their desire to be held accountable by you as they publicly proclaimed their allegiance to Christ as Lord. And this Lord's Day, this morning, we have the opportunity to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Sometimes, of course, called communion. Sometimes even called the Lord's Table. And in these two Sundays that we have shared together, last Lord's Day and this, we then have the opportunity as a church to come together and to celebrate what I'm going to teach you regarding this morning, baptism and the Lord's Supper. If you want to do a series on the church You really do need to include these matters of baptism and the Lord's Supper regarding the ordinances because they are important, very important, crucial in the life of the church. And need I say, dare I say, that if in fact there are groups of people who do not celebrate in obedience these ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper, then you're not talking about a church There are a lot of groups that meet together. There are a lot of people that do their thing. There are a lot of people who try to say, we're a gathering, we're a group. They may even label themselves as a church. But if they're not celebrating by obedience, baptism and the Lord's Supper, it's not a church. It is not a church. Because these are marks of obedience. And I want to talk a little bit about that this morning briefly so that we might set our minds on these marks of the church. 
So if you will, I want you first to hear me on the matter of baptism. And of course, if we were to begin to look, not in the Old Testament per se, even though there were ceremonial washings and there were hints at that which was to come, I want to take us in our New Testaments to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3. So that we might set our minds on this matter of baptism. Now, by way of explanation, when we go to Matthew chapter 3, we're not talking about what we could call Christian baptism. This is what we might be able to label pre-Christian Judaism in the baptism of John. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 1, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. And this is what he said, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So he was preaching the good news. Repentance, the kingdom of God. And in verse 7, he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism. That's because, verse 6 says, people were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. And so there were some religious leaders who were also coming, namely the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and they were coming to his baptism. And he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And he had some other excoriating things to say to these religious leaders because he knew that they were not really coming in sincerity. Now this isn't Christian baptism, but it's in one sense a prelude to it. This is sort of a pre-Christian Judaism whereby there were those who were being baptized in a way that says they were going to fully immerse themselves in the way of God. Full repentance. Complete confession. A lifestyle that said they had every intent on honoring God, obeying God, responding to God. That's why he uses the language that he does. He says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. When he says, back in that first section, verse 2, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Verse 6, confessing their sins. And in a sense, if you move away from John's baptism to Christian baptism, the immersion is the same, but it's all built on that which is to come. And that which is to come, of course, is the death the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And so Christian baptism is that which we would say has some of these same elements as the baptism of John. Repentance, fully immersed in obedience to God, confessing your sins, repenting of those sins, walking in a way that would honor God, glorify God. But now it's a baptism that is a baptism into Christ, into Jesus. And in fact, even Jesus himself submitted to the baptism of John. And a lot of people say, why? Well, look at it with me in Matthew chapter 3, beginning in verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? In other words, there's no reason for Jesus in that sense to submit himself to baptism because there's nothing for him to repent of. John knows about himself that there are reasons for John to repent. So he's thinking in his mind, this is something that's reversed here. I should be baptized by you not you to me. But Jesus answered him in verse 15, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. 
Jesus was going to submit himself to every aspect of that which Judaism had submitted themselves to God. And so John the Baptist consented. And notice this, verse 16. When Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. By the way, that's very significant, isn't it? Applies what? Immersion. Immersion. It's very clear from the New Testament that baptism is by immersion. Notwithstanding, wonderful believers, godly Christians, who would assume that baptism could be by sprinkling or some other mode, but it seems pretty clear to me from this passage and others that baptism is by immersion. He went up from the water. And behold, notice the miraculous. The heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. This may very well have been John the Baptist seeing this miraculous occurrence. The heavens were opened to him. Possibly, of course, the Lord himself, he and John, seeing these things. And they saw the Spirit of God descending on Jesus like a dove, coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. A Trinitarian affirmation of the Lord. Okay? And this particular baptism, the baptism of John, had some of these earmarks of repentance, confession, forgiveness of sins, a desire to walk publicly because this was a public event, immersed in this water, being raised to walk in this new life, this life of obedience. So John's baptism led to Christian baptism instituted by the Lord Himself in a sense right here in which He was baptized, which fulfilled all righteousness to the law. And then the Lord Himself mandates, commands that a baptism in His name, for His sake, by His Word, was to be the very ordinance that was instituted by Him and for the church. Look at Matthew chapter 28. We've, we've seen the first part of the book of Matthew. Now let's go to the end of the book of Matthew. And you know it very, very well. Verse 18 of Matthew 28. And Jesus came and said to him, said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. And how are they to be baptized? Notice this Christian baptism now. Notice this Christ-exalting baptism. Notice this Trinitarian baptism. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, and in the name of the Holy Spirit. That's why we call it Christian baptism. Trinitarian baptism. This is the baptism that is in the name of the Father, and in the name of the Son, and in the name of the Holy Spirit. It's not as though those particular phrases are magical terms that when we say it in the waters of baptism, it's as though it's some kind of magical incantation in the name of the Father and in the name of the Son and in the name of the Holy Spirit, as though the words are magical themselves. We say that and we say that very clearly and very distinctly because we are by that affirming Trinitarian baptism. It is a baptism that is different from all others which went before it. It's distinct. It is unique. It is this baptism by immersion that shows that it is a baptism that is Christian by nature. That is, that it is Trinitarian. It is for the fame and the glory and the honor and for the duty-bound nature of it to the Father, to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. By the way, even the word baptism itself in English comes from bapto or baptizo. It means to dip into. Could, of course, had its origins like the dipping of a cloth into dye. Or baptizo, which means, of course, to fully dip, dip into or to immerse 
And this literal immersion that we see regularly here at the Bible Church of Little Rock and in churches all around the world where they practice baptism by immersion is that sense of baptizo where we are immersing someone literally in water, under the water, and raising them up so that that water is seen by us as a powerful metaphor. And what is that powerful metaphor? Well, look at it in Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. There's not any water in Romans 6. It's not talking about literal baptism, but it's talking about this powerful metaphor. In other words, baptism signifies dying to sin and rising to new life in Christ. And that's what Romans 6 speaks of. Romans 6.3, do you not know, the Apostle Paul says to the Romans, that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into His death? We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. In other words, what Paul is doing is talking about a baptism with which they were all familiar because like a, like a powerful metaphor that comes from the literal waters of baptism. When you see someone being baptized, it is to evoke in our minds, your minds and my mind, that sense that we are dying with Christ and that we are being raised with Christ to walk in newness of life. We'll talk a little bit in a moment about the Lord's Supper and about how that too is a powerful metaphor, even though we literally partake of these things. I believe that part of the Lord's program, part of His plan, part of His teaching, part of the power of baptism in the Lord's Supper is that you and I see the, the literal water baptizing of a person and the literal ingesting of bread and cup as a powerful way, physically speaking, literally speaking, of that which God has done, is doing, will do spiritually in the life of a person and in the life of the church as they see it take place. That's why I said, if there are people out there who call themselves churches or who want to gather together and yet they do not have baptism in the Lord's Supper, they are missing the powerful reality of the symbolism that that, that, that rendering communicates. The, the, very, the very idea that someone could call themselves a church, a church body, a gathering of people, and not have these powerful, regular reminders of that which God is doing internally. It's, it's not as though, and we say this constantly when we talk about the waters of baptism, we even take a little bit of that water, cupping it into our hands, and we raise it up, and you see the, the water flowing back into the, the main tank, from our hands and we say there's nothing magical or mystical about this water and yet when you see that physically dripping from the cup of my hand it is a powerful reminder that this literal reality speaks of that which is spiritual in nature and what is spiritual in nature what is it it's Romans 6 that's what he says we're buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. The Lord knows us. The Lord knows our frame. The Lord knows what is powerful to our eyes. And when you and I see in the waters of baptism somebody going under... That's why I believe immersion is important. And then when we raise them up, that, that symbolism, that metaphor is powerful because it's showing externally, literally, physically, that which the Lord is doing internally, spiritually, 
in that sense that that person is saying publicly, I want to be held accountable by you. I want to walk now in newness of life. And when it hits the retinas of our eyes and we see this, it is what the Lord is doing to show us again and again and again what should be true of your life and my life, and that is perpetual newness in our walk of life. That's why baptism is so special. That's why when we see it with our eyes, literally speaking, it should be a powerful reminder, not just of the one being baptized and not just his proclamation, but all of us as we witness that proclamation of that which should remind us of our baptism. By the way, that should remind all of us, should it not, that if you're seeing someone being baptized by immersion in the waters of baptism and you've not yet been obedient to that, you can't relate. You've not had that experience yourself. Every time I see someone being baptized in the waters of baptism, it's a powerful reminder of my baptism. It should be a powerful reminder of your baptism. That when you hearken back to those days, however many days or months or years or decades that it occurred with you, it should be, and that's why God has us do this physically speaking, a powerful reminder of that which you experience. And it's a powerful reminder yet again when you see someone being baptized of your need, your duty to continue to walk in newness of life. That's why the Lord has us do this, I believe, in a physical way. Because it's such a powerful thing to us. It should remind us again and again of what Paul is saying here in Romans chapter 6. In fact, look in your Bibles at Colossians chapter 2. Another reminder of what's happening spiritually when we see someone baptized. Colossians chapter 2. Verse 12, Paul reminds the Colossian believers, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Romans 6, Colossians 2, talking about resurrection. The powerful working of God who raised Him from the dead. Raised to walk in newness of life. Powerful reminders. Baptism is not just the symbol. It's something literally we participate in. But it powerfully symbolizes through the very metaphor of that which occurs that you and I are dead to sin we are in union with Jesus Christ and we are raised to walk in newness of life by the powerful working of God who raised Him from the dead. Why? Because we were dead in our trespasses. We were dead. And God, according to verse 14, canceled the record of debt that stood against me with its legal demands and this He set aside, nailing it to the cross. So that when... Jesus, all the way back in His baptism, so that it would fulfill all righteousness, even though He didn't need to do it, powerful in its institution through Matthew 28, I'm telling you, every single person for whom, as you're going, that you make disciples, that you're to teach them everything whatsoever I've commanded you, and you're to baptize them in the name of the Father, and in the name of the Son, and in the name of the Holy Spirit, so that the literal reality is shown so powerfully spiritually because they've died. They've died to sin, not themselves, but Christ, so that Christ can set aside the certificate of debt through His death on the cross so that you and I could see through baptism a powerful working of God that you and I too, via our union with Christ, would one day be raised, even ourselves, literally, physically, from the dead, so that it would absolutely confirm that not only are we spiritually saved, but even one day we'll be physically resurrected from the dead. This is, this is powerful. This is wonderful. 
That's why it makes no sense, in addition to it being disobedient, it makes no sense for someone who says they love Jesus Christ, they profess Christ, they say they walk by faith, to refuse to be baptized. Because you are saying by that refusal that I am willing to destroy the very metaphor of my union with Jesus Christ. It's unimportant. I don't want to do it. And there are hosts of reasons that people give for refusing to be water baptized. I'm fearful. I don't like to get in front of large groups. I don't like to speak in public. I don't like water. It might get up my nose. And all of the excuses that I've heard through the years as a pastor are just that. Excuses. Because you are missing out, in addition to it being disobedience, you are missing out on that which is not only a public profession and a declaration of your allegiance to Jesus Christ, but you are missing out on being able to bless others, not only just yourself, by saying that what I'm doing in a physical way, being baptized and raised, is a powerful metaphor that proclaims my own vital union with Jesus Christ. Who wouldn't as a Christian, who wouldn't as a Christian want to say, I stand absolutely ready to speak of my vital union with Jesus Christ? Who wouldn't? I mean, think about it for one moment. These people in these New Testament times, in Rome, in Colossae, as they submitted themselves to public baptism they did so, so many of them, under what? Intense persecution. And when they banded together as a small little flock, and they went down to either the Jordan River or wherever they might be able to find water, they knew that it was possibly the end of their freedom because, in fact, if they were to be publicly baptized, they would be aligning themselves with the body of Jesus Christ and they might be themselves criticized, ostracized, imprisoned, or killed. Now what does that do to our piddly excuses? I mean, it takes them all away. Because what they were saying was this, I am ready to die for Jesus Christ. I am ready to proclaim publicly my allegiance to Jesus Christ because He is my Savior and Lord, and I would like nothing better than to publicly identify my union with Jesus in my baptism. Now that should be the heart cry of every single professing believer. Have you been baptized? Have you been baptized? Now I know there are some of you parents that are attempting, even though you're young adult or Young child may be saying, I want to be baptized. It's prudent, it's wise for you to see them as their, as their faith is tested. It's, it's wise for you with that as a qualifier. If you're an adult, if you're making decisions on your own, maybe if you're long past those times and seasons of your young life, I ask you the question again, have you been baptized? This is an ordinance of the church. You say, well, no, I, I, I want to do it. I've, I've thought about doing it. I've, I've considered it. Well, think about it in that context. This is your opportunity to proclaim your allegiance to Christ publicly. No longer can you say, I'm a secret believer. And this is an opportunity for you to say, I want to proclaim vitally my union with Jesus Christ because that's what it is. That's what those waters symbolize. It's a powerful metaphor for my union with Christ. I need to do this. I need to be obedient to this. I need to submit myself to baptism. I need to say, once and for all, I will be obedient to Jesus in everything. Everything. I mean, look for instance in, in the early part of the book of Acts. Look for instance in Acts chapter 2. You want to see what the early church did? You want to mimic the early church and do what they did right after the glorious beginning of the church itself? 
Acts chapter 2, look at verses 38, 41. These people repented of their sins. He preached the gospel to them. And in verse 38 of Acts 2, and Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. See, that's why we call it Christian baptism. It's in the name of Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Verse 41. So those who received His Word, that means they acted upon His Word, they accepted His Word, they affirmed His Word, they were saved. And what is that act Right after their salvation commenced, what was that act of obedience? They were baptized. They were baptized. Look at chapter 8. This is a marvelous, godly, righteous act of being baptized to proclaim your faith in Christ. Acts chapter 8 verse 12. When they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were what? Baptized. Both men and women. They were baptized. Look at verse 36. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water. Again, I think, immersion, immersion, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, that's obedience and baptism. Baptism by immersion. Look at chapter 9. Paul's own testimony, verse 17. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Verse 18, and immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. Baptized. You see the pattern here? Look at chapter 16. And these are just representative passages. Acts 16. Remember the the jailer, the Philippian jailer? Verse 31, And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. In other words, if you and your household all believe in the Lord Jesus, you will be saved. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all, including his household. All who were in his house. And again, it implies in the strongest way that all of these were capable of hearing the word of the Lord and believing in the word of the Lord. And in verse 33, And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Yes, I would assume they see these miraculous events occurring. They believe in the word of the Lord. And everyone, including the Philippian jailer and everybody in his house, they're seeing these miracles happen. They believe. They know it's the Lord. They know they need to be saved. They know they need to be redeemed. And they believe. And they were all baptized. What does it say? At once. At once. So closely, in fact, that when we read Acts 2.38, it almost looks like saved baptism. Saved baptism for the forgiveness of sins. Very, very close on the heels of it. And someone, someone might say, well, you see, that's, that's the whole point. There's even a large denomination that says, yes, you have to be baptized in order to be saved. That's not what these passages are saying. Passages are saying. They, they are implying in the strongest possible way, including Acts 2.38, that they are saved and then baptized. That's the order. Not they are baptized in order to be saved. In fact, I'll show you. Look at 1 Peter 3. This is, this is what we mean. You don't have to be baptized in order to be saved. You are saved and then you are baptized as a measure of obedience to the salvation you have just received. 1 Peter 3, verse 21. Baptism, which corresponds to this now saves you. Oh, you just undercut your own argument. Baptism now saves you. You see? Read all the verse. 
not as a removal of dirt from the body, but here's what, here's what salvation is, an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Baptism is the, is the symbol which shows that the salvation has cleared somebody's conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's what you do in response to your clear conscience because you have affirmed the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is... This is a wonderful ordinance of the Lord. And for each person who's truly repented of his sin, the waters of baptism await you for your public proclamation of faith. If you haven't been baptized and yet you have said about yourself, I'm a believer. I'm I'm a believer in Jesus. I'm a Christian. I've repented of my sins. I've placed my confidence in no one else and in nothing else other than Jesus, His blood, His righteousness, then I applaud that testimony. But you ought to be baptized. And you ought to be water baptized, and you ought to be water baptized by immersion. That's the New Testament pattern. And when you are, you can faithfully proclaim in those waters that I love Jesus Christ, that I'm obeying Jesus Christ, that I'm doing this in the name of the Father and in the name of the Son and in the name of the Holy Spirit. And because I'm doing this, I am showing you the vital union that I have with Jesus Christ. And it isn't by something that I've done in righteousness. It is by His righteousness and His righteousness alone that I stand before you in the waters of baptism and I exalt the grace of God. And it isn't works that I have done It isn't my baptism that saves me. It is, in fact, Jesus Christ who saves me. And the waters of baptism are my evidence that I am totally committed to Him by His grace through faith. That's the ordinance of baptism. Now, how about the Lord's Supper? How about the Lord's Supper? Go back to Luke 22, that passage that we read earlier from in our Scripture reading. This again... Is the Lord instituting something? And we believe that He instituted two ordinances. Some people have even suggested a third ordinance. We wouldn't call it an ordinance, but we would say that it's biblical and that it's important and that's church discipline. We're going to talk about that next time. But that's not an ordinance of the church. That's just uh, an obedience to other teaching from the Word of God that there is something like discipline in the church. Some people have even said, no, there's a third ordinance and it is foot washing. And there's debate about that. We don't affirm that. We believe that Jesus did that with the disciples, but we don't believe the language of that text demands that that become or is a third ordinance of the church. But we do so do say that there is a second ordinance of the church in addition to baptism. And chronologically speaking, it ought to be that someone's baptized first and then they celebrate the Lord's Supper. And this is what Jesus did. We read it earlier, Luke 22:14. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles were with him. And he said to them, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. That is, before I go to the cross. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Verse 17, and he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. By the way. Notice the very specific and precise language of the text. This is my body, not which is broken for you. Because remember, we want to be very specific with regard to the psalmist and what the psalmist said about the bones of Jesus and that none of them were what? Broken. This is my body, not which is broken for you, which is given for you. You say... You're trying to be technical and precise. Yes, because we want to make sure that absolutely every prophetic element in the life of Jesus is fulfilled. And one of those elements is that not one of his bones were broken. So here's the cup and here's the body. And they're both given for you. Do this 
in remembrance of me. And then he says in verse 20, And likewise the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. What is the new covenant? Full, free forgiveness through Christ. This is the, this is the covenant where everyone will know that Jesus is the Lord and that He offers full freedom and forgiveness for all of those who confess Jesus Christ as Lord. And then He says, and do this in remembrance of Me. Now, isn't it wonderful? Isn't it interesting that it's tied here in Luke 22 to the Passover with the disciples? That it's tied there in some way? We may not understand all the implications of how it was tied, but in some way, the Passover and the institution of this Lord's Supper is tied together. And you know where and why I think that is the case? Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5. This is why I think they are tied together. This is where it could be said in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 of the Lord Jesus. 1 Corinthians 5, 7, latter part of the verse. Christ... Our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. You know why it's tied to the Passover? Do you know why the Lord instituted this supper? So that when the bread and the cup would be celebrated, we would look to this powerful metaphor that Christ is our Passover lamb who has been sacrificed for us. And I go back to the same thing that I said before regarding baptism. When you and I take those elements, just in a few moments, when we take those elements and we, when we put that, that bread on our tongue and when we ingest that bread and then when we take that cup of juice and when we drink that juice, it is a powerful symbolic memorial reference to the reality that the Passover Lamb, our Lamb, capital L, has been sacrificed for us. It's powerful. It's absolutely powerful. And when we do it together, maybe even in one sense more intimate than, than baptism, because in baptism we, we are together, we are here it is a congregation, but we're looking at one person being baptized, right? When we are celebrating the Lord's Supper, we are all participating together at the same time, and it's a powerful reminder. It is a memorial to the very reality that Jesus Christ is our Passover Lamb who has been sacrificed for us. So powerful. In fact, if you're in 1 Corinthians, go to chapter 11. And this is, what, this is what Paul does to obey Jesus Christ and to teach what Jesus taught there in Luke 22. And this is what he says. Verse 23, 1 Corinthians 11, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. Notice he said, I received this from the Lord. Right out of that Luke 22 passage and the other Gospels. Here's what I did. I received it from the Lord and I'm now delivering it to you that the Lord Jesus on the night when He was betrayed took bread and when He had given thanks, He broke it, that is the bread, and said, this is My body which is for you. That's the best manuscripts. It's what they, it's what they say. It is for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. That's exactly what the Lord Jesus said. Do this in remembrance of Me. In the same way also He took the cup after supper, saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Notice also that it says as often as you drink it. It doesn't say how much we should celebrate the Lord's Supper. Some churches do it every week. Some churches like ours do it every month. Some churches do it once a year. If you go into the United Kingdom, they do it once a year in some churches. And you know why they say often that is the case? Because this is so important, so critical, so powerful that we don't want to turn it into some regularity, some, some perfunctory purpose. This is so powerful that we want to do it once a year so that everybody understands how powerful this is and that you would not miss it. And he even adds in verse 27, 
Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. And apparently those Corinthians, some of them were in fact treating the Lord's Supper in a less than worthy way. And so Paul says in verse 28, let a person examine himself. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. We ought to carefully examine ourselves. And when Jesus, by the way, said, this is my body, could even be that sense, and I think grammatically possible, and maybe even contextually necessary, to say this is my body, this represents my body. Because we're not like Roman Catholics who believe in transubstantiation, that that actual bread and that that cup or that wine, that juice, becomes the body and blood of the Lord, literally speaking, transubstantiating itself into the literal body of Christ and the blood of Christ. And, of course, we know from the book of Hebrews that that's not accurate because that sacrifice of Christ occurred once and once for all, once for all time. And it's not even as the Lutherans say, they speak and teach consubstantiation, so many of them, that there's, in a sense, this real presence of Christ, which I think is just in some ways, even though they repudiate so much of Rome's teaching, not a shade or two that far off from such an idea that Rome teaches. I would say that we would teach and believe that this Lord's Supper is the memorializing Not just the symbol of, but the very memorializing. That's why we say, do this in remembrance of me. That's why we say it every communion. We're doing it in remembrance of Christ because this is a powerful, even literal display. Not of the body and blood of the Lord. That's not what is in these elements. But they point to something. They memorialize every time we do it, that which occurred at Calvary. And when we take those elements upon our lips, we are saying in huge metaphorical fashion that I believe in Jesus Christ. I believe in His life. I believe in His death. I believe in His burial. I believe in His resurrection. And that I affirm that Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. And when I take these elements upon my lips, I am saying with the communion of saints that Jesus Christ is my Lord. That He's my Savior. That I have the forgiveness of sins. That I look to Christ and Christ alone for my substance, for my life, for my future, for my own future resurrection. And I look to these, my brothers and sisters in Christ, as a way of showing that my communion with them is a public proclamation of the death of Jesus Christ until He comes. And I'm also saying by doing it that I have in fact examined myself. And that I want to eat and drink in a worthy manner. And that my sins have been confessed. And that Christ has forgiven me by virtue of what He's done for me on the cross. And that I proclaim this death and resurrection of Christ and I bask in the forgiving grace of God. That's the Lord's Supper. That's what we celebrate even now. Let's bow together in prayer. Father, we look at these two ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper, and we... take them to ourselves very personally. And when we see these literal realities, someone being baptized, immersed into water, and when we literally take upon bread and cup to our lips, we are showing a vital union with Jesus Christ through His own death and burial and resurrection and through obedience to Him because He commanded us to be baptized. It was the the very pattern of the early church and it's the very 
metaphorical, important truth of being baptized into His death and being raised to walk in His life, a new creature, born again, born from above. And when we see the powerful union of our communion together, where we are proclaiming this our Lord Jesus' death until He comes. It is the very proclamation of our union with Him, that we are one with Him, and that we use these literal realities to proclaim the grand spiritual truth that Jesus Christ is Lord and that we believe in Him and we believe on Him that He will one day raise us from the dead and that He will take us to be with Himself and that we will celebrate there forever and ever that which is a mere shadow of those things which are to come. Oh, we do proclaim your death, Jesus, until you come. And we thank you that every month of our lives we are reminded in this your table that you are the worthy lamb, the Passover lamb who has been sacrificed for us, sinners, and that we've received forgiveness of sins. And that this glorious gospel is proclaimed when we partake of this, your supper together. And we do it with joy, with gladness. And we do it with an appropriate self-examination. And we do it because it's a matter of obedience. And that it glorifies you when we obey you. Oh, we thank you. We praise you for allowing us to affirm from your word these ordinances. For your glory and honor we pray. Amen.